your colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I shall start off by saying the greatest uh, being politicians, the greatest declaration in prison is declaration of freedom of speech. So we came out of prison and soon thereafter we went to parliament. And after just getting, after two or three minutes, the Honorable Speaker will say, time up. <laughs> now I thought I should start off with a, with a protest. This is an institution of free speech and I'm told I'm going to restrict myself to ten minutes. <laughs> anyway, I'll try my best. Uh, but before that, I should identify one or two individuals here. And my apologies if I can't apologize. I mean, I identify everybody. There's uh, Mrs. Mbeki here. Uh, welcome. And uh, unfortunately, sitting next to him, uh, next to her, is somebody I didn't want to, but not forced to identify him. <laughs> Because uh, I was given the responsibility by his mother uh, to discipline this child. So in the process I was regarded as the sixth son. I was the elder brother. And it was quite a task to discipline him. Uh, well, having said that, ladies and gentlemen, I haven't got a particular topic to, to, to deal with. Uh, so what I think I should do is to briefly mention some of the trials that we went through, some of the, the court cases. And I won't mention all of them. But I think I should start off with uh, uh, the Orange Police I was arrested, I don't think most of you know that in apartheid time, uh, Indian, I'm not talking about all the discriminatory laws that apply to all the people who are not white, I'm just talking about some of them. Indians were not allowed to move from one province to another without permits. Uh, to be found in another province is a criminal offense. The free state did not allow Indians at all. So in 1955, I went to the police state and I got arrested. When I went to the police, when they took me to the police station, the station commander says, this is the first time in my life I have seen an Indian. <laughs> they said, I've got cells for Blancas, I've got cells for Bantu, that's his language, by the way. But I brought no cell for him, for Indians. He asked me, his prisoner, where should he lock me up? But there's no cell. I said, look, I'm not white. And they solved this problem. <laughs> I was uh, after Joe Sobo was my lawyer, and he found a technical point that got me off. Uh, otherwise, I would have gone to jail. But uh, when I was found guilty of being in a colored location, 
in Brunkman and I was charged 10 shillings. One round. After the defiance campaign trial, that was the first uh, major trial of 1952, where there were 20 accused. Uh, what had happened in 52 is that uh, the African National Congress and the Indian Congress decided to jointly identify six laws and called upon volunteers to defy those laws and in the process uh, for imprisonment. Uh, so in that uh, uh, campaign, uh, 2000, this was an Indian Congress uh, campaign, so 2,000 Indians uh, went to prison uh, over the period. Now it is in that situation that uh, Mrs. Pahar, Dr. Pahar's mother, uh, went to prison. Uh, not once, uh, but twice in that uh, uh, campaign. And uh, left behind, uh, he was quite uh, not very uh, young, uh, young, but there were younger brothers too. So I had to help him in looking after them before I myself went to prison. Uh, so the defense campaign was 20 of us were used and uh, we were found guilty under the Suppression of Communism Act for having the defiance campaign and we were sentenced to a nine months imprisonment, uh, all suspended. Then we'll fast forward to the treason trial, uh, which uh, started on the, well, we were arrested on the 5th of December, the anniversary of the Kibas Bank. And it, I won't go into details, but it started off with 156 of us and ended up from 1958 to 61 with only 30 of us. In the end, we were acquitted. But what I want to say that for that trial, we were charged for treason. And they had to prove two things for treason. First of all, violence. And in this particular case, they wanted to prove communism. So one day when we came to court, the court was full of diplomats and senior police and they didn't know what was happening. The prosecutor then got up and said, I'm going to show you these so-called non-violent people. And he called a gentleman by the name of Solomon, of whom we never seen before. He claimed to have been a secretary of the African National Congress Eastern Cape. And we had about 12 or 13 uh, of our views from the Eastern Cape, they didn't know him at all. And he claimed all sorts of things, but the most important thing, because they had proved violence, uh, he said on a certain date in September, Dr. Vatele and Walter Susuru asked him to go to the Brighton station and cause a riot. He says he did so, and a few people were killed. Uh, and he went into a lot of uh, such evidence and everybody was shocked. Nobody knew this chap. But uh, after the judgment, he was cross-examined. By this time, our lawyers found some information about him. So when the court resumed, our lawyers started off by saying, Mokomotsi, you're a thief, you're a liar, you're a cheat. What have you got to say about that? They said, no, it's not true. 
Then he says, well, I'm going to show you a document that on the night that you went and forced this riot, you were in fact in jail. <laughs> and this is a letter that you wrote, the original letter you wrote to a lawyer in Germany to defend you. And so you were in jail. Everything you said is false, is lying. So that destroyed, that destroyed the violence part. Now to prove communism, they brought uh, Professor Murray from the University of Cape Town. And he was given a document after document, confiscated from our offices and our homes. And every document he was given, uh, he said, communism. Undiluted communism, off the shoulder communism, everything. He was then given a document. What do you say about this? He said, communism. Do you know who wrote it? No. This was the doctoral thesis of Minister Pete Kurano. <laughs> but then he went on. And later on he was given another document. And then he, he said, what do you say about this? He says, communism. Obvious. Do you know who wrote it? No. You wrote it. <laughs> so that destroyed the communism part of it. So after sitting in court for four and a half years, we were acquitted. Then comes the, the big trial, the Rigonia trial. Uh, we sent us to jail. Now at that time there was a, a law that allowed the police to detain political suspects for three months at a time in complete isolation. No lawyers, no visitors, no newspapers, no books. The only visitor you get you're not even allowed to talk to the people with whom you're arrested. Uh, the only visitor you had are the police. And every time the police come, they come pretending to read something and they say, look, give me this bit of information. If you don't, you're going to hang. Now you're alone in yourself. And at that time, you know, in jail we struggled quite a bit. And we managed to smuggle things, but one terrible bit of information reached us. And that was uh, Luke Spartan Goodred, one of our colleagues from Cape Town, was tortured to death. Now you will go into yourself and you worry more and more. What is going to happen to me? Am I going to die? In the process, my colleague, one of the Rivonia writers, Governor Petty, his hair started turning white. And we got very worried because we have heard that under test situations, people sometimes tend to lose their hair, others' hair turns white. <laughs> now we can't talk to him. So we have more sleepless nights. His hair has turned white. <laughs> what has happened to him? Has he been tortured? Has he broken down? But you can't talk to him. But again, in jail, you do have an opportunity to have a few words. And I asked him, well, what has happened? Have broken down there? Do you have any information? No, nothing of the sort. My black head I have won. <laughs> Before our arrest, we were all disguised. Uh, as well, Madiba was uh, 
a farm laborer, uh, Gordon and Brady, Raymond McClower, Wilton and Quine, they were all farm laborers working for the farm in Rivonia. So all these guys, me, 30 years of Pomela, life I was there, an Indian, and after 30 years I was converted into a Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, after, after that we appeared in court, uh, and the first day, from the first day, the lawyers said, prepare for the worst. And the trial was conducted with, we had four of the most senior leaders of the ANC among the eight of us. Mandela Sassou, Governor Betty, the father of President Betty, and Raymond Trump. Now under their leadership, it was decided that this should be run as a political trial, not as a criminal trial. So when you you've all read of uh, his speech to, to uh, the court, it was about four hours, but he ended up by saying, uh, uh, it's not the exact words, all my life I fought to avoid equality and justice and freedom. This is what I hope to achieve in my life now. At the end, if need be, this is what I prepared to die. But he said the tone of the, of the defense. In that speech, in other words, those of us who had to go to court, uh, to evidence, uh, took the cue from him, from his speech. You don't apologize for what you have done. You proclaim your political beliefs. You don't volunteer evidence if it's not there. But if there is evidence, you don't dispute it. Uh, but that is how the trial was conducted and until the very last day the expectation among prisoners us and among our lawyers was death. Now at that time the court procedure was the judge would say accused number one before I sentence you to death have you got anything to say? So you must remember, we, got, we went to court expecting the death sentence, and so did our lawyers. And Madiba had prepared just a few sentences which are published in a book, which he was going to tell the court. Again, uh, repeating what he had said, this is what I uh, stood for and this is what I prepared to die But fortunately, the death sentence didn't come. <coughs> there was a collective sigh of relief when uh, they said life in prison. So on the same night of our sentence, we were eight of us accused. The eight of eight accused was uh, White, Dennis Goldberg, and an apartheid, of course, he couldn't be on Roman Island. He was kept with other white political prisoners uh, in Victoria. The seven of us were handcuffed, leg irons, uh, put on the airplane, and the next morning we landed on Roman Island. Now I'm not going to go into the, all the details of Roman Island. Uh, we spent uh, 18 years on Roman Island, that is the remote area, and uh, the rest on, uh, at Old Prison. After 18 years, five of us were transferred to Old Prison. So all in all, Madiba was in jail for 27 years. 
I was in jail for 26 years because I got a discount. <laughs> anyway, so Robin Island, just one or two things and I'm going to finish there. Of the seven of us, at the age of 34, I was the youngest. Government and baby, 20 years my senior, Sasuru, 18 years my senior, Medivar, uh, 10, 11 years my senior. When and there were discriminatory laws, Indians and Kalits were treated differently from Africa. So the first thing we had to do on that cold winter day is to change into business rules. All my colleagues, because they were Africans, they had to wear short clothes. I was given long clothes, because Indians and Kalits were given long clothes. The Russian mouth behind long clothes, or short trousers, is all Africans, regardless of age, were treated as boys. So you had little children in those days talking of my garden boy, my kitchen girl, unfortunately that type of language still exists, and boys of course wear short trousers. So all my leaders and seniors had to wear short trousers, I had to wear long trousers. The next day, breakfast. I, I, I was given, a, it was porridge soup coffee. I was given a little more sugar than Madiba, but less than Denisovo. But Denisovo was a Pretoria. I was given a quarter loaf of bread every day. Madiba didn't get bread for 10 years. That was it. In the beginning, we were writing one letter, one visit every six months. Uh, and by the time I finished my 26 years, I was writing 40 letters and 30 visits. We worked, and this is where I'm going to conclude, we worked at the quarry with pick and shovels for 13 years. As soon as we arrived on Roman Island, Madiba had said on behalf of the leadership, we are no longer leaders. We are prisoners. We don't make policy. We don't give instructions. Oliver Tompo, chief president of them, alive, Joe Slobo, Oliver Tompo, those are people who make policy. We are ordinary prisoners. And that's how they behave. Every prison show, they did. You know, there was the most menial things like on Robben Island, in single cells, there are no flesh toilets. So you have your buckets. But if, of course, people offered to do that for him, he refused. But not only that, there was a time when most of us went down with flu. We couldn't get up. Madiba was still fresh. He went from cell to cell, together with the two or three others who were still fresh, taking our buckets, emptying them washing and putting them in the sun. Polishing the floor, working in the quarry, everything that other prisoners did, they did and our, our leaders did. So, uh, what I'm saying is that they behave like ordinary prisoners, no preferential treatment. And that was a great boost to the rest of us uh, in behavior of our leaders. Now I'm 
going to end up on an absurd note. Because we cannot communicate with our colleagues in the communal cells with our hundreds and hundreds of them, in order to save our studies, because we, we those of us who were given permission to study, we could not abuse our study privileges. So we used to write our messages on toilet paper. And, and uh, a lot of them were caught. So there was a whole aspect of things that were caught. So they then decided to restrict that. Governor Baby, who was the oldest among us, and we had said he should not come out to work, he was given the task. Every morning, he should count six leaves of private paper and give it to us, and in the afternoon, another six leaves to prevent us from using private paper for communication. But I could go on and on. I think I should, I should stop there. Time is uh, against us. Uh, all I can say is that we, of course, Roman Island is not, I mean, any prison is not easy. But we are always asked, what can be morale? One of the things, of course, there was always that for 16 years we didn't have newspapers, we had to smuggle. But what kept up our morale is that the government did not succeed in crushing our struggle. And there was international solidarity. But most important of all, is the knowledge that we were protected from Roman Island. No policeman could come to Roman Island and start shooting at us. Always the knowledge that while we were safe, our bodies were harmed. They were killed, they were tortured, they were hanged, assassinated. We were safe, we were protected. And that is what we had in mind all the time that helped to keep up our morale. So we regret, the biggest regret is come April 94, the, our comrades who sacrificed the most did not live to see freedom. Uh, so many of them tortured to death, uh, assassinated, and I don't want to go into names. But there were so many of them. With that, we succeeded in '94. The biggest achievement in April '94 was, for the first time in our lives, we could win back our dignity as ordinary human beings, not as Indians, colors, African, whites. I had a little board here. We made which you may not have seen, but I'll just say that board says, and this is a replica of the board that was all over the show, Europeans only, non-European not allowed. There's even a board that said non-Europeans and dogs not allowed. So that board is here, uh, a replica of the board. So they had reduced people who were not white to the level of animals. Uh, so, I come back to that, you'll have time.
back to see the octopus. I come back to that. April month before broadcast picnic. You don't see this anymore. We are all equal. And the greatest thing for us today is when we see this, all of you, which was not possible before, not before. All of you are doing this. particularly to young people, with freedom comes responsibility. Freedom did not fall from heaven. You, the young people, have got responsibility to yourself, to your parents, to your country. Every avenue that was closed to before is open. South Africa needs skills in every direction. We don't have, we, we have the import skills. We rely on our young people to take advantage of that and make their contribution, become engineers, become anything that you want to, to serve the country. And we look, look upon you, the future is yours, and the whole of South Africa and the world depends on you. Thank you very much.